Good morning, and it's good to see everybody this morning, and Pastor Dan, appreciate the, just the, appreciate where Pastor Dan started us this morning and where we, where we went with worship, because certainly, if, I, if you would have started with my preaching at the beginning, you probably would have heard a sermon of how I feel, and so I'm so grateful. Uh, that's one of my favorite Alistair Begg clips, and um, just a reminder how everything we do as we gather is reminding us of what we know, and so, so grateful for Christ-centered, God-honoring songs, and appreciate uh, our worship team as they have ministered to us, reminding us what we know, leading us to sing what we know, to prepare our hearts for the Word of God. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 10, and as you do, we're continuing our series in the uh, tales of the kingdom through the parables, and so we still have a little bit uh, of path to go, and uh, we have a few more. We have next week, of course, our conference, and then uh, we have a few more uh, parables to go, and then we'll be we'll end our parables there with the parables regarding the last times and the second coming, and so that's kind of where we're headed. So this morning, before we read God's word, let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, once again, Father, we come before you and praise your name for what you have revealed to us. And it is in that truth that you have revealed uh, that we stand. And it's the truth that we have uh, sang this morning. It is the truth that um, because of your work in our hearts, we believe and pray that that has, we've been able to encourage and admonish one another, even al already through the singing and through the prayers that have been lifted up. We come before you with great need. We recognize that in us dwells no good thing. And, uh, and so we are thankful for the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer and pray that you would illuminate the truth and that as we go through this text that we will see Christ lifted up and uh, that we, we will love and treasure him. And it is a result of the gospel, uh, the truth of the gospel, that our lives will overflow with love and mercy uh, and grace and forgiveness and good works. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would empower me through the Holy Spirit. I bring nothing to the table, to this uh, pulpit that, um, that could earn anything. And pray, Lord, that you would demonstrate the power of your word through me. Forgive me of distractions and my own heart and its failings. And pray, God, again, that you will be glorified through your word. And pray that you give us all hearts to hear and hearts to receive uh, what you have revealed in the scriptures. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the title of the sermon this morning is, Are You a Good Neighbor? And uh, we want to go to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse 25. Stand with me in the reading of God's word. The scripture says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from, the, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among, the, among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, out, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of, the, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We all have heard the commercial jingle, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I saw your mouths even uh, in sync with me there, right? In fact, I imagine that every household in America is familiar with it. And uh, like that little phrase, that little song, the parable of the Good Samaritan is the most familiar parable next to the prodigal son. In fact, I would guess that probably people who are not even familiar with the Bible or aren't uh, extremely literate in Scripture would probably have some knowledge or familiarity with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It has become a staple in our culture that's used to uh, promote caring for the needy or as a means to highlight uh, someone who has done something good or something benevolent for someone else. And so we are all familiar with good Samaritan stories. All of that demonstrates that the parable is generally misunderstood. It's just generally misunderstood. In fact, I will simply just state it in the very beginning that the point of the parable is not simply about going and doing good things for those in need. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's not an ethical implication of the parable, but Jesus here is teaching us something central to the message of the kingdom of God. And so to understand the point of the story, we need to be asking the right questions. And in fact, the parable is told specifically to a lawyer who, who raises questions to Jesus. We could say to some degree the lawyer is asking the most important question a person could ask. And notice what he says there in verse 25. What shall I do to inherit eternal life. His initial question is not about how do I be a good neighbor? I could have easily titled the sermon, not are you a good neighbor, but what do we need to do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You could take that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, and put it as a banner over this entire passage here in Luke. Others in the Bible, in the Gospels, have come to Jesus and asked the same, the very same question. We think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him what he had to do in order to inherit eternal life. 
And so in others, like Nicodemus who approached Jesus. And so here in this text, it is a question that really we all should be asking today. How can I inherit eternal life? How can I receive the promises of salvation? How can I escape the judgment of God and enter into the grace of God? There's no other question more important than that. In fact, you know, the, impl- the, 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 the implication of the question is that we all have eternal souls. We know he's not a Sadducee because many of you in Sunday school this morning heard, were probably talked about the Sadducees. He clearly believes, or at least he implies that he believes, that there is life after death, that there is a future resurrection. And so in light of that, he, he assumes that he has an eternal soul. And so, with all, and so do we. And that's why it's so important. Because every single one of us, when we die, we're going to go somewhere. We're going to go to heaven or we're going to go to hell. And every one of us need to be asking the question, how can I receive eternal life? Central to the gospel, the, the gospel narratives. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And so what follows is in Jesus' answer caused the lawyer who asked the question and all of us to pause carefully to examine the condition of our heart. Because our response to others or our love for others is a reflection perhaps of our own relationship with God. And so it caused him and it should us to pause to examine the condition of our heart, the depth of our sin, and our need for a savior. In G- for our need for a savior, and in the end, the, I mean, just ultimately, the point of the of the parable is this: we cannot be saved by our, keeping the law, loving our neighbor, or caring for the needy. That really is the point. The point is, is that we cannot be saved by our keeping the law, loving our neighbor, or caring for the needy. Now you know why I said in the beginning that our culture completely misunderstands this. And so the big idea that I want to put out in front of us, the key kingdom truth, is this. Because we cannot keep God's law perfectly, we need mercy and salvation from the true good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, to inherit salvation. I mean, that really is, the, that, that's the whole kingdom truth that's here. But in the very beginning, it's just simply this. You, you, you cannot be saved by keeping the law. You cannot be saved by caring for the needy or loving your neighbor. And so we're going to see this key truth in three ways, in, in three sections. One, we're going to look at the curious exchange between the lawyer and Jesus. Then we're going to see, after we look at the curious exchange, we're going to see the comp- comparative example which is the parable itself. And then in the end, we're going to actually look at the challenging end of the parable and what Jesus puts before him to answer the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So look, let's look at the first thing, the curious exchange. Look at verse 25. The text says, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so in the curious exchange, this curious exchange, the first thing we see is is that the lawyer, he raises the right question. He raises the question, however, to test Jesus. This, again, is in in that category of interactions that Jesus will have with Pharisees where they present a question to set a trap, and then he responds to them. 
And so the lawyer asks this question to trap him with, with, with it, that it because it has, in the lawyer's mind, it really has no clear answer. And so whether the lawyer was driven by a desire to impress others or to embarrass Jesus, we don't know for sure. But despite his motive, the question he asks is legitimate. And, and dig into the question for just a second. He wants to know what is the one act that's how he's trying to set Jesus up. What is the one act, the one deed that I can do that will open the gates of heaven? And again, I'm compelled to remind you that there cannot be a more important question. And so with that question, Jesus presents his own question. So he flips it back to him and he says, well, what does the law say it, the answer is? What's the law say? Look, look, look at it. What, what is written? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read the law? What's your understanding of it? And so it is interesting that Jesus points this inquiry to the law of God. Is he setting him up to give him a works-based salvation? Well, follow what is, the, what, what, what is next. He not only raises the right question, he quotes the great commandment. Look at verse 27. You, well, here's the answer. He quotes the scriptures. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer knew the law of God. And he combines two verses from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18, and he combines it. And this, the, the lawyer's answer is a summary of the entire law. It's important that, he, that we see that what he does is, is the lawyer acknowledges that we all have a duty as human beings toward God and to one another as image bearers. And that's clearly seen in the division of the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 4 are our relationship with God. And commandments six through, 5 through 10 are our relationship with man. And so Jesus would later combine these two passages himself in what is now regarded as the great commandment, Matthew 22. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, on these two commandments, all the law and the prophets. So far, so good, right? So Jesus hears what he says as he answers, and it seems to be in line with perhaps what the law actually teaches. But here's what happens. As you look at verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God. Look at verse 28. And he said to him, look at Jesus, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what we then discern after the question that is raised and then after the quote of the commandment is that he misses the weighty inference. He misses the whole point. So as Jesus affirms the answer, he goes further by telling the man, do this, do it, do it and you will live. Love the Lord your God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, go out there, man, 
and love the Lord your God with all of your being. Love God completely, wholly, and perfectly. And then go do this. Do exactly as it says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor with the same self-preserving, self-caring, self-focus that you give to your own well-being. Love others with whole being self-forgetfulness. Now check it out. On the surface, there is a promise. Do this and what? You'll live. You'll live. You'll have eternal life. Keep the law, not just in obedience outwardly, but keep the law even in your own attitude, perfectly in every way, and you will be saved. Anybody feeling the weight of that? The lawyer misses that looking deeper, there is a problem. Looking deeper, there is a problem. Who does this? No one can do this. No one can meet the perfect standard required in the law of God. The law is beautiful. The law is wonderful. The law reveals the character and the nature and the, and the greatness of God. But the law is weighty because no sinner can actually truly fulfill the commands and requirements of the law of God. Who has loved with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength? No one has. No one has gone through the whole week not put, making something more important than God. No one does. And so, and, so, and so there's a problem, and that's why it always drives me crazy when I see people grab this verse, yank it out, any, either of these two verses, they yank it out of its context, and then they claim it as their life verse. Like, really, that's your life verse. You're knocking it out of the park. You're going to go through the whole day. You're going to forget the Bengals game, and Browns game, sorry. You're going to forget... You're going to forget dinner. You're going to forget every other thing in your life. And you're just going to hold, entirely set your focus on God. No. No. And so people jerk this verse out of context. And, and, and then they, they make it. And then the other question, who's loved their neighbor perfectly without flaw or failure? The problem is our total inability to keep the law. Galatians 3 verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. But it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I mean, that's a, that's a clear summary. The book of James, chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law, not some of the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so the man misses the weighty inference of Jesus' affirmation. Jesus is impressing upon the lawyer to look inwardly to see his own heart and to recognize his inability. But guess what the lawyer does? He persists with spiritual pride. Look at verse 29 again. He says, he says to him, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus has held the mirror of God's law, John MacArthur says, up in front of his face. And the man acts as if he's got it all together. He's like vanity smurf. 
looking in the mirror, thinking, wow, look how great I am. Instead of being broken over his sin, he asks a self-justifying question. Well, who is my neighbor? Again, he's trying to trap Jesus. And, and notice how he avoids internal examination by shifting to external evaluation. He's not looking in his heart. He's looking at the boxes he checks off. Who is my neighbor? I've got that one, right? Because here's the common thought among Jewish rabbis at that time. Your neighbor was anyone you felt worthy of your love. The Jewish rabbis taught that you were to love your neighbor, but you were free to hate your enemy. And that was a common statement. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Or those you feel unworthy. The religious were free to hate the immoral, the idolater or pagan, the social outcast, the racially or ethnically different, and so on. And Jesus really flips this, ultimately in his ministry. Remember what he said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a common rabbinical claim. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And so the reality is, is that this man persists in his spiritual pride because he thinks that he's only obligated to love those neighbors that he has deemed worthy of his love and of his mercy. And so the, what Jesus is doing here is really offensive to all of us today in our present moment. Because all of us have failed to love God and love neighbor. We, have all, we all have harbored hatred toward others because of the way they believe religiously, the way they stand politically, or behave morally. And that is not just, I'm just saying us as human beings. I'm just saying human beings. And you see that all over society. What does that show? You say, Pastor, what is the point? There is no way we could be saved by keeping the law based on loving our neighbor. That's the point. We fall short on all fronts with our uncaring, unkind, unloving hearts apart from Christ. And so the kingdom question that this exchange presents to us is this. What do you believe is required for eternal life? What do you believe is required? Because if you came in this morning and you think, well, my good works or my efforts or my, my trying, you're missing the point. Are you convicted of your inability to keep God's law? Salvation begins at that point. Salvation begins with our recognition that we are unable, revealed to us by the work of the Spirit, that we are unable to keep God's law, and we are guilty. And so this curious exchange then unfolds into the comparative example. In the comparison, what Jesus is doing is, he's just telling a parable, and he's using religious people to highlight the point. And so in the parable, you see three things. You'll see a man who's attacked, and so you'll see how the man was attacked, how this man who was attacked was avoided, and then how he was aided and how the Samaritan aided him. So let's look at the parable itself now. So Jesus' answer to who is my neighbor, Jesus tells a story. And so notice then in verse 30, he replied, 
and he explains how, the, how a man was attacked. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the situation, there's the situation, there's the setup, there's the basic situation. Jesus presents something that's very realistic, a man who is unidentified ethnically and religiously, but most likely is Jewish, travels to Jericho. Jerusalem sits 2,500 feet above sea level, and Jericho lies 800 feet below sea level. So you can imagine the geographical difference and how, I mean, even the terrain itself is just hugely uh, diverse. When I was in Israel way back in 1995, we, I can remember driving the bus taking us on this road. It's a rugged and barren road even to this day. And you go from up in Jerusalem and you do descend all the way down to the city of Jericho. It's, it's rugged, it's barren, the people, and, and so the people here that are listening to this, they would have been captivated by Jesus, knowing this journey and its dangers. Rocks and caves provided great hiding places for bandits and robbers. And notice in the text the dire and desperate situation of the man. He is attacked by robbers. He is stripped of his clothes. He is beaten senseless. He is robbed, and then he is left for dead. It is clear that the man has no ability to help himself, and he is at the mercy of anyone who might pass by and consider him a neighbor. So notice then how the man was avoided. That's how the man was attacked. Look how the man was avoided in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here's what Jesus does. In telling the story about a man who has been attacked, he presents two religious individuals who are coming perhaps from or going to the temple for worship. They would be the most likely to stop, right? The religious would be, you would think, that it would be religious people, right? You ever heard that? You know, like, oh man, you know, that would never happen in church or by church people, which is always silly when people say that. So the idea is that you, know, you would think that they would stop and show compassion. And so the first thing you see there is a priest passes by and notice Jesus' words on the other side. The wording is precise, it is precise as Jesus uses specific verbs. He saw the man. He's aware of his situation. And he then willfully passes by the man, distancing himself on the opposite side of the road. Though knowing the man might be dead, he does not even check on him. Now, as a priest, he was not permitted, or at least he would have considered himself, not permitted to touch a dead person because if he did, he would, he would then become ceremonially unpure, impure. So maybe he avoided for other reasons, but there are other motives there. But he basically avoids because he does, if he's dead, then he'll become impure or unclean. And then Jesus presents a second, a Levite who passed by on the other side. The Levite, one of the temple priests 
who would have been involved in sacrificial offerings. What does he do? The same thing. And so clearly, the lawyer should see himself somewhere between the priest and the Levite. Maybe they avoided him because of inconvenience. Maybe they also avoided just because they were indifferent. I don't want to get involved. I don't even know the guy. And I am busy and need to get on my way. But in both cases, their avoidance was intentional and it was driven by self-righteousness. And what it shows you is the blindness of religious pride. Listen, these men were committed to the Sabbath. These men went to the temple. They were conscious of the need for sacrifice. But yet when it come in just a simply daily interactions with other people, they were completely callous in their service and in their attitude and love for others. Where really was their faith? So often, the self-righteous, and hear me, so often the self-righteous use ceremonial purity and even doctrinal preciseness as a justification to be unkind, uncaring, unloving toward those who are considered unworthy. That doesn't mean that we should not care about what we believe. That doesn't mean that we should not care about how we live. But we should also recognize that we are called to, in our hearts to love others. And our sinful actions flow from sinful attitudes. And so you have how the man was attacked, how the man was avoided by these religious people, but then you have how the Samaritan aided him. Look at verse 33, and this is, the, this is really the pinnacle of the parable. But a Samaritan, stop. Jesus chooses a Samaritan as the protagonist or hero of the parable. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Look what Jesus is doing in the parable. I mean, he is, he is showing you the, the excessive overflow of care that the Samaritan grants to this man. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I want you to see four things here about the Samaritan. First, you see his despised character. He is a Samaritan. And Jesus chooses a Samaritan because they were hated by the Jews, and they were considered unclean. So two Jewish religious people overlooked their own countrymen and went on their way. But the Samaritan, who would have been a known enemy to the Jew, is the one who stops. Samaritans were hated religiously because centuries earlier, they had broken God's law, they had desecrated the temple, and they had intermarried with pagans. And as a result, Samaritans had their own religious system, their own temple that they claimed, or their own mountain that they claimed that God should be worshipped at. You hear about that in John 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And their claims were categorically against God's word. Jesus intentionally uses this Samaritan because those listening and the lawyer would have been shocked. The Samaritan? Yes, the Samaritan. So his despised character 
And then you see his deep compassion. Notice he had compassion. The word compassion means pity. He pitied the man. He wasn't thinking of his own purity. He was thinking of the man's situation. His attitude was not inward, it was outward. He didn't know the man. He had no idea how he, found, how he got into that condition. Yet he was full of love and full of pity towards him. But he went a step further. You see his dedicated care. Look at verse 34. It says that he went to him. He didn't just feel something. He acted upon how he felt. He went to him, not away from him. He bound up his wounds. He poured medicinal oil and wine to clean the infection. He then put him on his own. Look what it says. He then took him and put him on his own animal and then brought him to the inn and took care of him. And so he goes from dedicated care of just initially meeting the guy where he is in that condition to devoted commitment. The man puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn. He checks him into the inn. He then pays the innkeeper in advance the next day to ensure that the man was cared for. And then he promised that when he returned that any other bills or expenses that might be incurred as a result of this man's injuries and stay would be taken care of when he returned. The point is this. The Samaritan's love was costly, yet it was complete. You following me? It was costly, but it was perfect. It went above and beyond anything that would have been anticipated. And so now remember the lawyer's question. Don't keep going, keep, keep with me here. Remember the lawyer's question. What do I do to have eternal life? Because unlike this Samaritan, the lawyer who asked the question, the priest and the Levite, including, and, and for that matter, all the rest of us, we put limits on the requirements of the law. That's what we do. We always have a loophole because we're always trying to self-justify ourselves. And so the kingdom question that the parable impresses upon us is this. Are any of us the good Samaritan who loves everyone perfectly all the time? No. Can you admit, can I admit, I'm the priest, I'm the Levite apart from Christ? See, that's what the lawyer needs to get to. And the fact that Jesus has entertained this the fact that Jesus has had this exchange and the fact that Jesus has gone on to tell this parable demonstrates that he is even compassionate to the lawyer. Because he could have easily said, this conversation's over. I know what you're trying to do. You're just trying to trap me. You're trying to bait me into an endless debate and I'm moving on. But instead, Jesus carefully applies this parable and drives it towards the man's heart. And you see that in the last point, which is the challenging end. Look at verse 36. So after Jesus tells this story, after he tells the parable, he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice, others are listening, but Jesus makes him do the thinking, the evaluating, the examining. 
And so the challenging end comes with a piercing question. So tell me, who do you think proved to be a neighbor? The question that Jesus asked goes to the heart. It is piercing, and it is designed to expose the truth. It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I love my neighbor. And then you start digging into that, and you're like, well, I mean, I love my neighbor, like the people that I hang around with, the people that I live with, but like, I don't really love people that are outside of that spectrum. It is, it is a whole other thing to actually be moved with compassion and to show mercy to someone who needs mercy, especially if we find them unworthy, inconvenient, or even hostile or hateful toward us, right? And it makes you and I ask the same question. Who proved it? Who really was the neighbor? And the man, the lawyer, gives a plain answer. He can't maneuver around what Jesus said. He can't at this point say, yeah, but we're allowed to hate people. <laughs> he can't do that. And he says, well, the one who showed mercy. Jesus' question forces him to put the plain answer on the table. It is really self-indicting that he answers this way. The lawyer must admit in plain language that the Samaritan, the Samaritan showed mercy. That the Samaritan is the one that's in the right and the religious ones are in the wrong. To a known enemy, the Samaritan did what the Jewish religious leaders would have never done. Not only to their own countrymen, but let alone let alone a Samaritan. The one hated by the Jews showed compassion and mercy to a Jew. So the lawyer's trapped, and the word mercy is important. What is mercy? The word mercy is not simply kindness. This is, again, why, why, this is why it's ridiculous when, our, when we see this parable hijacked and just like, you know, we just want to highlight random acts of kindness. Right? I close the Bible today and I just say, now you all just go out and just do random acts of kindness. That wouldn't be a bad thing, but that wouldn't be the point of the text. And so the word mercy means it, mercy is a costly type of love. Mercy knows no limits no matter what. Mercy is a pardon that's given to a criminal. It is a king who cancels the debt of the servants that owe him. That's mercy. It's giving to others what they absolutely don't deserve. Mercy is undeserved, unearned love toward those who are unworthy. That's what mercy is. And that's the way God loves sinners. That's the way God loves sinners. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being what? Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we were unworthy, even when we were undeserving, God in Christ loved us and sent him into the world to go to the cross on our behalf. The one who showed mercy is the one who proved to be the neighbor. You can't be saved by being a good neighbor. And so, but interesting, Jesus gives a personal command. He does it again. You go and do likewise. Now, didn't he say that already? I mean, you would think, right? Shows you the darkness of the heart. How our pride 
prevents us from seeing the truth. He says, you go and do likewise. Now listen, because I'm, we're, I, th- I thought this would be like an hour sermon, so I don't know where we are in time, but here we go. A personal command. By telling the lawyer this, he places the full weight of the law on the lawyer. Man, go, Jesus says, and if you're going to be saved, if you're going to inherit eternal life by your acts of kindness and love for neighbor, then your love and mercy needs to be as perfect and as without limits as the Samaritan. And you must not only do it once, you have to do it all the time, and it always must be perfect, and it can leave nothing undone, and then you will have eternal life. It is clear that Jesus is giving us the standard of the law, is beautiful perfection, and we don't have it. It is so high and so unattainable that no one can reach it. You say, so then what is, each, what, what is the point of saying you go and do likewise? Because what the man should have done is turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess, I am not the Samaritan. I confess my sin. Forgive me, Lord. I have not loved God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all of my strength. I confess that I have not loved others as I should. I am the one that crosses the road and goes to the other side and lives a self-centered, self-righteous life. Forgive me, Christ. Forgive me, Lord. That's what he should have said. I have all kinds of hatred and prejudice and superiority in my fallen heart. And you see, now you can see how timeless this is. Because the same is true of all of humanity. We don't love our neighbors outside of Christ. We do not love our neighbors as we should. I mean, for that matter, we don't even love the way we should in our homes, right? I mean, we we don't. In our marriages, in our children, our love falls drastically short. I'm not saying that you don't love your children and love your spouses, but the reality is we don't love to the measure of perfection that the law gives. And then you get outside of the home and we begin to see our desperate need. And then you look at society all around us, the sins of murder, racism, pornography, objectification of other human beings, and even religious moralism. All of that stuff is just a sign of how fallen the world is. And to some measure, all of that is in the heart of every person. In our own day, it's augmented. Not only do we cross the road, we hide behind our screens and we isolate ourselves, filling uh, f- all the while our hearts are being filled with anger, jealousy, and even hatred toward others. It's rampant in our society. You know what it means? We don't need to be a good Samaritan for eternal life. We need the good Samaritan to grant us eternal life and make us new people who will love God and love a neighbor. And who is the good Samaritan? The good Samaritan is Jesus. He is the one. I mean, isn't it interesting that he is the one? Jesus, the one telling the parable, is the one who would go to the cross and lay his life down for sinners, for us, for his enemies. We, this parable reminds us of how much we need the blood and the righteousness and the greatness of Christ. The Samaritan is never called good. We call them good. 
in the text, he's just the Samaritan. And as the Samaritan, it points us to the only one who is good. And the only one who is good is Christ. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For Christ who also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see what this does is that our inability to the law brings us to the one who kept the law for us. Our inability to, our failure to love God and to love neighbor, it's been fulfilled in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our inability to keep the law brings us to the one who went to the cross and died for lawbreakers and was put in the grave and came out of the grave on the third day so that we could be saved. He is the good Samaritan. He is the one who can forgive us of all of our trespasses. And all of the lawyer could have just seen the truth and confessed and come to Christ for salvation. We need his grace. And only when, hear me because this is going full circle, when we have experienced the saving love of God in the gospel, do you know what happens? We are set free from our self-love and we are empowered to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because suddenly, the gospel gives me the lenses I need to see people as they are, because as they are is how I was outside of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I can extend love and mercy, and I can give compassion, because God has done the same for me. And though I don't meet the mark, it doesn't matter, because Christ did. And now, filled with his love, it overflows from every believer. How can I inherit eternal life? Through Jesus Christ. That's how you inherit eternal life. The cross positions us to then extend the same mercy given to us and to show love to fellow image bearers without any hesitation. The cross enables it. Spurgeon is incredibly right when he says this, love of our neighbor is not a condition of salvation, but it's a fruit of salvation. Obedience to the law is not the road to heaven, but the pathway which is followed by the faith that is in Christ is a faith that works by love. And so as we think then about the conclusion, it leads to this question. How does your love and mercy towards others fall short of God's standard? Do you see your need for the good Samaritan? And are you amazed at the mercy of Christ? At the end of the story, what we walk away with is not an impossible. I mean, the, what the truth is, is that the weight of the law is lifted because of Jesus. And Spurgeon again is right because he says, Let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us the gospel produces in us. The gospel produces in us. Because the gospel takes away that self-righteousness. 
It takes away all of that self-love and it fills us with the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not a cheap love, but an expensive love that cost his son his life as he took the wrath that should have been ours and paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be saved, forgiven, and forever transformed. So as we come to the end of the sermon, three things, three things. Admit your inability and failure to keep God's law. Admit it. We don't have to be, we don't have to pretend to be, we don't have to pretend in our self-righteousness. We need to, we need to stop the questions and just say, I admit it, Lord. I, and I cannot keep your law. I cannot put any confidence in my works and then pivot in faith and go to Jesus, the good Samaritan, the great Samaritan, the grace-filled Samaritan and rest in his love and mercy that extends to you from the cross and he will save you and change you and then lastly once you've been to the cross turn and love your neighbor love your neighbor and even go beyond that love your enemy by the showing mercy and sharing Christ because that's what he's done for you and as you think about that last that last statement who do you need to, who, who, who would fall under, under that? Who are the neighbors? Begin in your home and go outward. Who's God put in your life that you need to extend gospel love toward? Are you a good neighbor? Nope. But in order for you or me to have eternal life, we have to admit we can't keep the law, turn to Christ and rest in him, and as transformed people, go with the same love and grace towards others. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. Thank you for the time that we have had together as we've sat here and we have considered this parable that our Lord taught. I pray that you would help us to see what the lawyer did not see, our inability to keep the law, and that in seeing our inability in all the ways that we fall short, that we will come to Christ who will lift the burden and will forgive us and save us and put in us a love for you and a love for others that cannot come from ourselves. And then help us to go and help us to share that love with those around us as we share Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.